Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firm-wide research at Galaxy Digital, and I'm joined by a great group today, Christine Kim from Galaxy Digital Research, Rachel Rybarczyk from Galaxy Digital Mining. Welcome. Very excited to talk with Rachel. She's going to tell us about Stratum V2, the new Bitcoin mining protocol that um, has been in the works for a long time and is much needed, but we'll find out more about that. And also our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading is going to talk markets. Before we get going... I know, Christine, you just got back to New York. I did. Um, and Rachel and Bimnet, you live in New York. Did you guys see the the New York City uh, public service announcement about a nuclear attack? I did. <laughs> what did you think None about it? Things, uh, just on Reddit. <laughs> None of the things I feel like will help, though. Like, if yeah. you close the windows, it's like, I don't I know. know if that's going to help you. They said, uh, like, go inside and, um, and uh, wait for, like, an update via text text message do we think the cell towers are going to work in the event of a nuclear attack and they also said you got this yeah they said don't worry you got this it's like ridiculous it is ominous though that uh they felt the need to release something like this uh at this time it does harken back to the the you know the like the the kids hiding under their desks in the 60s yeah dicey and um, there's another random thing that I was thinking about was these, um, the natural gas refineries, the one in Freeport, there was another one in Oklahoma that have exploded. The one in Freeport knocked offline 20% of Europe's gas, which they get from us. Do we um, know why it happened? No. Um, but I, I think what I read was that the FBI is investigating. I mean, it doesn't, it's critical national infrastructure. But let's go to Bimnet. Um, tell us about markets, how it looks from your seat. We had the CPI print this morning, which was what, 9.1% year over year? Correct. Um, which is like beat ex- beat expectations. I guess it's a weird way of saying it, but estimates were for like 8, 8.8 or something? Correct, correct. So, so estimates going in um, were pretty sort of uh, concentrated around 8.8 um, for the the year over year number and you know same sort of scenario with with the month over month number but if you looked at the the subcomponents and the forecast for for the various subcomponents there's a tremendous amount of distribution amongst yeah. all of the the various forecasters and you know the forecasters and inflation have been wrong for the past 3 inflation prints or past 4 <laughs> Um, and so it just goes to show you how difficult it is to, to forecast inflation. Right. Um, you know, just taking a step back high level, you know, you were in a world, you know, call it five, six, seven years ago where central bankers and economists were constantly telling you that inflation was going to come in higher than, than expected and it came, constantly kept coming in lower than expected. Um, and then you were in a period where inflation is transitory and now it's it's sticky and now it's a lot higher than people expect and so you know i think one of the key takeaways that if if you haven't already you know uh, appreciated this fact is that inflation is really hard to forecast i don't care how many phds you have Hmm. it's really tough to get that number um and now moving on to the more important point uh, which is how does the the Fed sort of react to this number? Right. Um, the market seems to think that uh, a hundred basis point hike in July is now um, likely uh, to the tune of a fifty percent probability now of a, a hundred basis point hike in <laughs> July. After moving from you know fifty point base point increase yeah. seventy five, um, now we're on to the question it of feels hundred like, basis point. It hikes. feels like that. It's like hair on fire. They're like, oh my god, like we. We thought 25s, you know, I forget if we go back and look at the dot plot from like yeah. six months ago, it was, it was many consecutive 25 bit hikes. Then it was like, oh, it's getting worse. Make it 50. And it almost felt like at the last minute they made it 50. Um, yep. And now they're talking about 75 and 100. Like it's just, I mean, what if it comes in, the next print comes in higher than expected again? Are we going to see like 150? Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, where, where does it stop and end? And yeah. you know, how, how does the Fed think about its, its credibility in, in this instance? Um, I think, you know, those are all sort of super important concerns. Um, my thing is that, you know, listening to Powell uh, last FOMC, 
when asked about, you know, the potential for um, a hundred basis point hike, you know, in July, you know, he, he's specifically stated that, you know, 50 and, and 75 were, were the most likely course of action and, and not a hundred. <laughs> and so for him to flinch on back-to-back meetings, um, on back-to-back inflation prints, you know, I think doesn't set the, the, the right tone. But the counter to that is, you know, the Fed, like, loses a little credibility by not reacting to, to right. a really high number when they told you that they're data-dependent and data is coming out high. Um, and I think, you know, some of the reasoning for the, the 100 basis points um, is partially a function of Bank of Canada, who at 10 o'clock th- this morning, um, again, this is this is Wednesday, um, you know, increased rates by, by 100 basis points. And so that started, that catalyzed a little bit of the move towards more of a 100 basis point pricing. I see. Um, now, I don't think that what the Bank of Canada did should really influence what, what the Fed is doing. But it is influencing the market's expectations. Correct. The and the market expectations do the influence the Fed <laughs> as well. So it's sort of this weird, you know, function within a function within a function sort of, you know, scenario that makes it really dynamic and yeah. like tough to figure out as, as a market participant. But high level to me, I don't think that Canada moved by a hundred basis points really, um, should impact the Fed because the Bank of Canada is just catching up to the Fed. Um, there, so if you look at expectations for where rates are going to be in September for Canada and where rates are going to be, you know, for September um, in the U.S., they're identical now, right? So I think you know the hundred basis points was really just more of a of a catch up play for, yeah. for the Canadians, um, and so it shouldn't really impact us. Got but it. again. If the market starts to price in 95 basis points by July FOMC, you know, the Fed doesn't really have much of a choice Um, because, again, effectively, they would be like materially easing monetary conditions um, where when we know their job is supposed to be tightening them at at uh, 9.1 level percent inflation. Yeah. So you're saying if they um, come in below expectations, ultimately, that is easing. It could be perceived as as, perceived, as, yeah. as, as, as easing, yeah. which, which is, is not what the perception they want. Correct. Um, and but the more important things that you know I think are, are worth thinking about um, are what is the impact of, of more aggressive front loading by the Fed um, and by other central banks. You mean and raising I, faster now? Correct. Higher. And what what is how does that change sort of you know what we expect uh, you know in terms of the economy and how. Rob- strong it's going to be or how weak it's going to be on a go forward basis and most people tend to think that the more aggressive and the more front loading um, the hikes are the the worse the economy is going to do in the back half of this year um so you know i think there's a lot of folks that think we'll be in a recession in q4 of this year or, or q1 of this year and that becomes a lot more likely the more aggressive the fed gets now interesting um and we're already you know the the most you know personally just just Full disclosure, I'm in the 75 basis point camp. I think the Fed should stick to, to the guidance that it gave. Um, uh, and a lot of, you know, the reason why I'm thinking that is if you look at what energy prices have done since the, the last reading. Again, CPI is a backward looking measure. Right. And they've, they've come down a bit, right? Come down meaningfully. Yeah. Gas was down meaningfully over J- July 4th weekend, the, which is a huge travel like weekend for folks. the drop in gas prices ever or something I correct yeah huge huge magnitude in a pure notional basis but yeah yes um and you've also had market-based um uh, metrics for inflation move a lot lower so if you look at inflation break-evens you know they've been moving a lot lower and if you look at the the rest of the commodity complex as well like you know looking at things like corn wheat um so on and so forth you know they've also moved a, a a lot lower um, and so I think if, if you're the Fed, you're looking at all these sort of leading indicators for inflation telling you that, you know, things are cooling down. And you have this backward looking indicator telling you that the economy is really hot. And it's not telling you anything you didn't really know. Um, so, so, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, if I was thinking about, you know, an economy that's potentially going into a recession you know, in Q4 of this year or Q1 of, of next year, a twos tens curve, which is now inverted almost close to 20 basis points. Um, and, um, you know, forward metrics of, of, uh, of, 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 of inflation, you know, suggesting a, a lot lower, I would be inclined to, to go 75. Um, but again, it's, it's going to be a debate um, at the Fed. 
I do think that if the Fed chooses to go 100, you'll see people dissent, uh, which is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, typically, you'd like to, when the Fed takes unprecedented monetary policy action. <laughs> you'd like it to be you'd, unanimous, you'd right? You'd like to, to be close to unanimous. Yeah. And I believe we had one dissenter. During during last FOMC, and the other thing that I don't that I think will, will allow the Fed to, to do seventy five or should make the Fed inclined to go seventy five is the strength you've seen in the dollar, right? You know we're talking about euro dollar breaking parity, dollar yen at at, at one thirty seven, you know dollar index, you know trading at you know close to like two decade highs, right? That's crazy. Um, and so the dollar is doing a lot of the, the work for the Fed. The commodities are, are coming off and they're priced in, in, in dollars. And so I think there's a lot of reasons to be um, sort of cautious um, if you're the Fed in, in your approach um, to, to, to raising interest rates. Bim, do you think that the dollar is the only safe haven asset in your view looking forward to what might be a worse like second half of this year? Like where does crypto kind of play a role in offering investors perhaps another safe haven asset like alternative? Well, um, you know, I fundamentally, I, I think crypto, it, it's really tough for me to hear the word safe haven asset and crypto in, in the same sentence. <laughs> you know, simply, you know, the, the way most investors think about how risky an asset is, is the volatility of it. And crypto tends to be really volatile. Right. If you look at volatility on a, you know, a, as a function of, you know, standard deviation, Bitcoin, ETH, you know, they trade at 60, 70, 80 vol. Right. And so there's very few things that trade at 60, 70, 80 vol that are considered safe haven assets. <laughs> right. Like so uh, like to give you an idea, euro dollar, right, euro versus USD probably over the past year has averaged just off the top of my head anywhere from five to like eight realized vol you know, his, uh, on a, you know, a, a long look back, right? And so those are things, and bonds and T-bells, those are like considered like safe havens. Um, so I don't think there's much in crypto that I would consider safe haven. Even even the, the, the stable stuff, uh, as per our conversation last podcast, you're not even getting that much yield on stables, particularly compared to what you can get in, in traditional markets. And so um, I don't think crypto is really the place you want to be um, right now. Um, in, in the context of all of the uncertainty in, in the world right now with respect to commodities, interest rate policy, stocks, stock earnings. Um, there's just so much going on that, you know, for investors to feel comfortable going out the risk curve, I think is going to take a lot. Yeah. And, and the dollar itself, though, to part of Christine's question, like it's stronger than it's not ever been, but in 20 plus years, I think. And um, that's because everybody's holding dollars, right? Absolutely. It goes back to, you know, the again, the, the point we made last week, the, the dollar is taking on such a unique risk profile right now, where it is simultaneously a, a, a carry currency, um, as well as a, a right. risk off hedge um, in, <laughs> in the market. Um, it's really tough not to be long dollars right now. It's kind of also ironic, though, that I saw a statistic that 80% of all dollars were printed in the last two years, and that's likely what pushed up inflation. But it's also now the asset to beat inflation. That seems like a very oxymoron concept to me. Oh, I, I think uh, you're, you're, you're 100% right. And, you know, the way I sort of think about it is like, okay, so... The Fed has shown you that, you know, they're going to hike rates and they're going to normalize monetary policy when, when things overextend. But how quickly does it, does it, you know, sort of revert back in the sense that let's say the Fed starts cutting eventually. Let's say um, the Fed goes back to easy monetary policy and then we go back to inflation. Like, then what does the Fed do in, in that scenario? Because it's and like they, so, they aborted and they tried and aborted multiple times in the 70s before Paul Volcker went you know, um, super scion or goblin mode or whatever on his rate yeah. hikes. Like they tried several times and pulled back and it wasn't enough to halt inflation. Had to keep doing it, right? No, absolutely. And and the question is, can other economies sort of keep up with, with the U.S., right? There's some sort of contagion risk here <laughs> as, as well. Like when, when, you know, U.S. financial markets, you know, sort of take a turn lower when commodities, like if you're an EM economy that imports a lot of commodities, and you pay for commodities in dollars, you're getting whacked on, on both ends. The yeah. commodity prices have been going up and your currency has been depreciating. 
right? You, you've seen all of these, um, you know, protests in, in, in Sri Lanka, right? You, you, you know, uh, the, the favorite Lanka, analogy is Ecuador, like, yeah, Argentina, um, uh, the Netherlands with the, the, yeah. the farmers. Yeah. I mean, there's, and so, and the other point is like, you like in those nationalities, you're, you're dealing with high levels of inflation right. as is, and right. then you're throwing on the, the currency depreciation and it just becomes, you know, such a double whammy that it leads to, to so much turmoil. And so, you know, I do think that there, there is sort of some, some natural limits on, on what central banks can do on, on sort of the, the hawkish side. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's a really complicated world right now and, uh, there, there's no easy solutions and, and the fed is, is not, uh, is imperfect and, and they're an imperfect body yeah. and they have a really tough problem that they probably won't solve. Well, it feels like they created a lot of the problem too. Um, but Absolutely. not, not all of it. I mean, I think, uh, there's obviously the commodities and supply chain stuff is, at the front of uh, what's really causing observable consumer price inflation. Absolutely. Today. And we are seeing signs that uh, a lot of these, these supply chain pressures are abating right. somewhat. If you look at, you know, the prices for like shipping containers, right? Those have, you know, come off um, a lot, right? Um, thing, inventories um, for uh, U- U.S. companies and, and just, you know, brought like, you know, consumer goods, et cetera, are, are insanely elevated. Right. You've started to see um, certain parts of the housing market, you know, uh, turn, turn lower as, as well, right? Like mortgage rates being at 6% and plus, like ha- have an impact on, on the economy. So you are seeing, you know, uh, encouraging signs. Yep. Just um, one last thing here to add, uh, Stephen Hankey, the um, professor at Johns Hopkins, not a fan of crypto, this man, by the way, but otherwise quite a well-known economist. Um, he has an inflation dashboard that he creates and looks at annualized inflation, um, which is he uses some of his own metrics to get to uh, his own view on what annualized inflation is from the top down. Zimbabwe, 472% this year, he thinks. Turkey, 116%. Sri Lanka, 130, 113%. Venezuela, 89. Lebanon, 88. Cuba, 79. Laos, 72. Argentina, 62. Malawi, 60. Ghana, 47. Ukraine, 44. Pakistan, 42, etc. These are all emerging economies with extremely high inflation. Um, and when you couple that with high food prices, a hot summer, right, you start to see the possibility for significant um, additional civil unrest. And we're already seeing it. There are literally protests. I don't know why they're not really covering it in the United States, but there are massive protests going on in many places of the world right now. Almost all of them about um, energy and food prices. Yeah. And then there was that one in China for the frozen bank accounts. Yeah, uh, that's true. This is a big deal. And there's the the Dutch farmers who are protesting a pretty draconian action by the, the Dutch government to essentially seize their land um, over ostensibly uh, for climate reasons. But it it appears also under the um, when you look under the hood that it's like for national expansion of their cities, basically. And then, uh, you know, the one thing that, you know, I'd be remiss to not talk about is, you know, sort of one of the broader tail risks in the market is with respect to to sort of energy markets in, in Europe. Yeah. Right? You know, we spoke about this last week a little bit, but you're already seeing a heat wave in, in Europe right now. Yeah. And that's sort of um, already causing, you know, ripple effects in, in, in the European energy and, market. And Nord, the Stream, is, yeah, yeah, exactly. Nord Stream 1 is down for maintenance yes. currently. Mm-hmm. And people are speculating, which is a major pipeline that delivers gas from Russia to Europe. Uh, I think that one goes through the Baltic Sea area. Um, so a northern one. Um, People are speculating whether that maintenance ever ends and whether Putin keeps it closed, right? And yeah, that would and whether further, I mean, know, Europe will have enough inventory Russia by is November. Russia squeezing Europe hard here Absolutely. on energy, and it's working. And in the meantime, they're making a ton of money, Russia, because of the elevated prices, right? So it's just a the geopolitical situation there is wild. I, I saw that President Joe Biden is going to ask uh, the G20 uh, to, uh, and, and I think also oil ministers from oil producing countries to put a cap, a, a top line cap on the price of oil that absolutely will not occur. <laughs> right. But like they're trying, the, the Europeans are really stuck here. That's why I mentioned that Freeport refinery that that produced 20% of the gas that is imported by, yep. by, and it's offline imported by Europe. And, um, so yeah, it's, 
uh, the energy situation. And then you had obviously, you know, uh, Germany had shut down all of their nuclear plants. Now they're yeah. having to restart coal plants in order to generate electricity. No, no, absolutely. And just, you look at coal prices in Europe and, and right. abroad that, you know, they're, they're bid. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just yeah. like, uh, Energy is at the base of everything. Yeah, uh, no. not just in economies and markets, but in the universe. So, um, I mean, uh, yeah. And again, I've been saying this, you know, repeatedly for the past couple months now. But this is easily the hardest markets, you know, that I've ever seen, and that most folks that I talk to that have been in markets for a while, you know, have ever seen as well. Yeah. So, you know, yep. I tread carefully. <laughs> All right, let's call, let's talk about a couple uh, interesting random crypto things, and then we're going to go to uh, Rachel to talk to us about Stratum V2, which is super interesting. Um, but first, just we're going to go around the horn with, and I'd love anyone to chime in on these. But um, I guess I'll start first with Binance, uh, Binance's CEO, uh, CZ, um, probably at one point, maybe the wealthiest person on earth, although I think with crypto price depreciation, uh, no, certainly no longer. But um, he tweeted... Uh, yesterday on Tuesday, uh, or maybe it was on Monday, I can't remember, but a day or two ago, um, as we record this on Wednesday, um, that Uniswap, it appeared that their threat model had detected that Uniswap had been compromised and hacked and that there was already 4,000 plus ETH that had been drained from it. And of course, this caused a lot of fear in the market because Uniswap is probably the single most core DeFi application that there is, right? And it's um, it's an essential sort of building block for how all of DeFi operates. Um, but it turned out not to be true. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, like, first of all, I think when you looked at the transaction that they shared, it actually just looked like a wallet had withdrawn a bunch of ETH from a Uniswap pool. And moved it to Tornado Cash, which is like a mixing protocol. Which raised the red flag, I think. Right. Um, but yeah, there's no vulnerability. It was just um, that wallet was hacked, it, it appears, right? So, you know... You, you get the LP token from Uniswap. You can use it to withdraw your funds. And someone did that and then mix them in Tornado Cash. But it was pretty wild to see CZ like painting it like that. But I also think that part of it was because he genuinely thought that this very big DeFi protocol. I don't think he was intentionally trying to spook the markets. I, I, I think mean, he I definitely. I, I, I'd like to needed. believe that. But he, you know, something like Uniswap theoretically is competitive with his business. So it's hard to, it's hard not to like, you know, see it both ways, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it was uh, malicious, but it was market moving information and it was wrong. And that's a fact. Um, so that seemed a bit irresponsible from my view. He did get a lot of, yeah. And he did apologize, I, on, so on any, but it was a pretty, media. pretty wild, pretty wild situation. But it is kind of interesting in that interim period where people didn't know widely that it was a phishing attack. Like, what can Uniswap really do when yeah. all of their contracts are fully deployed? It's not something that they can change, which is actually very unique for right. Uniswap in comparison to other DeFi protocols. Um, and it makes you think, like, if Uniswap ever launches a V5 and there is a potential exploit to it, there's really nothing that can be done. That's right. Um, that's one of the reasons why Uniswap is actually legit decentralized. There's no, uh, those contracts are not upgradable, um, and there's no admin keys. And that's, that's refreshing in DeFi to be honest, but yes, if there's a bug, like all they can do is be like, everyone should probably stop using that contract. Like they can't un deploy the contract and they can't fix it either. Right. That's why people still use Uniswap V1 shockingly. Um, they're on V3 now. Anyway, that was a that was kind of an interesting little dust up. Um, oh, I guess while we're talking about Binance too, they Binance the which is the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange um, by volume. We think uh, we assume um, you know volume. I say that because volumes are kind of hard to track in crypto, and there's a lot of you know bogus stuff. But Binance massive, probably the largest. Um, they dropped trading fees for Bitcoin to zero. Um, have you seen that? What do you think about that, Bam? I think uh, this is entirely where, where the space is headed. Um, you know, I, I spent, I've spent a good amount of my career in, in traditional FX markets, um, and those markets are incredibly commoditized. Yeah. The way I would, I would think about it is trading exotic options in G10 FX is about as liquid as trading like vanilla stuff uh -huh. in, in other markets, just to give 
folks a, a sense of, you know, like exotic options are, are really tough to price and, you know, there are all sorts of nuances to it, but the depth of, of that market is, is insane and it's super liquid. And I kind of see crypto headed in that same direction where, you know, for, you know, if you're trading Bitcoin, it should be like you're trading Euro dollar or yen. You're going to have like very tight, you know, super commoditized pricing on not just spot, but on, you know, any sort of derivatives products that that come on afterwards. Um, and so, you know, I think it, this is a healthy sign mm-hmm. um, that the market is is moving towards, you know, um, uh, operating in a way that's similar to traditional markets. I think it, it, it probably entices more market participants to come in, you know, if they're not worried about, you know, paying trading fees, um, et cetera. Um, so broadly speaking, I think this is a constructive development for, you know, crypto adoption, Um, going forward. Yeah, it's not constructive, though, for exchanges whose sole revenue is derived from trading fees, right? They're gonna have to find some other form of revenue. Absolutely. (laughs) No, it's like, but but it's a a race to zero. Yeah, exactly. It's the fee That should already be I mean, you you, you talk about FX, because that's your experience. I think of it from the mutual fund side, where coming from Fidelity, also absolutely the exact same thing. ETFs, all of those fees compress over time. So yeah, um, I think it's awesome. I don't want to pay fees to just swap between Bitcoin and and dollars. Um, And it must drive, we'll just have to wait and see because um, I think also all the brokerages all went to zero fee trading, basically Fidelity, like Schwab, they all went to zero. Yeah. Um, after, and, and Robinhood pushed, pushed, pushed that too. Exactly. Um, Robinhood went to zero because they sell your information, essentially your flow payment to, for order they, flow. They receive Correct. payment for order flow. Um, Fidelity and, and Schwab, they, Fidelity specifically receives no payment for order flow. Um, so how do they do it? Well, they just have a whole bunch of other businesses that generate money, right? So actually retail trading doesn't need to be their cash cow. That's sort of my point though about the crypto exchanges. What other businesses will they have to make money if they can go with trading fees to zero? You know, I'm not like insanely familiar with um, their sort of business models, um, but I do know that, um, you know, certain um, market makers or certain exchanges like like FTX, they have market making arms as well. Um, Almeida Research being sort of the the market making. Absolutely, um, lending. You know, um, there might be staking eventually. Absolutely. I think some of them do, right? Well, yeah, I know it, some essentially of them do. <laughs> ser- serving as sort of custody prime right. for exactly for um, you know investors. Um, I think there, there's plenty of money to be made. Um, historically, um, you know, exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange, Nasdaq, you know, CME, CBO. Um, they make a lot of their money from sharing information. Yes, this is right? a, for that's data, a really interesting for point. Data. Because none of the exchanges mm-hmm. in crypto today sell data. In Correct. fact, they pretty much all give it all away for free, which is... The beauty of it's awesome. crypto. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's awesome. It's just, But it is shocking, you're right, because data, financial data is an enormous commodity, a valuable commodity in traditional markets. You think about like the Bloomberg terminal. Oh, yeah. I mean, people pay thousands per month uh, per per, per, per station. Uh, But, you know, in terms (laughs) of people, some of those people, I think, are in this room. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, information is is an insanely valuable commodity. um, And that's how a lot of, you know, the the traditional exchanges, you know, make their money. Um, But I also don't imagine that uh, a lot of, you know, traditional exchanges are just long like nasdaq stocks like crazy right you know whereas you, we know that you know institutions like binance are, are probably long a healthy amount of bitcoin <laughs> yeah. naturally on on their balance right sheet. and so you know i i i, I think that it, it's going to be a tough operating environment yeah. um but i i do think that that binance's move uh, i mean it, it was smart. inevitable yeah and, <laughs> and being just, being first, um, I think, is always smart in these. If you know Absolutely. that you're going to zero, eventually, you may as well just. Yeah, and, and, and the and other finance is so massive. I mean, they've yeah. got a bunch of other the stuff other going part on. Is Plus, like, it's also only on Bitcoin, as far as I know. It's not actually correct. all cryptos that trade there, and they trade many hundreds of them. Um, but okay. soon, yeah, soon TM. I think probably with the others. I, I love it. I think um, fees should go to zero. All right, um, couple other quick ones. MakerDAO, um, the. Probably though, I guess it's safe to say the oldest DeFi app. Maybe technically, I guess Bancor was around before them, but MakerDAO launched in 2017. Um, I think it's still the top DeFi protocol in Ethereum by TBL. It is ever Ops. since the you know deleveraging uh, and unwinds happened. Um, it is the largest by TBL. 
um, right? They issue the DAI stablecoin. It's the decentralized over collateralized stablecoin slash lending, you know, protocol, whatever you want to call it. Um, I guess they have a new proposal um, to add, uh, to create a new vault. So like last week they created a vault for Huntington Bank. Huntington they passed Valley a Bank governance vote to, to, allow to do them. that, they, to allow it. Yeah, and, and that succeeded overwhelmingly last week. Yes. Um, to and allow a traditional go- bank to have their own die vault and basically deposit assets and borrow die, right? Like any other user. Yeah. But to, now they have a proposal to add SockGen as an approved vault, which is going to collateralize their vault and generate die based on securities, security tokens that they yes. issue. Yes. Real world assets, yes, they call that's it. regulated by the French government in France. Um, it's quite an interesting proposal, really fascinating. Um, and to be clear, this is not the first time that MakerDAO is onboarding real world assets and with uh, real counterparties and with these vaults. Um, they've already done so with like five other companies. Um, but this is definitely a multi-year effort. Right. This started back in 2021, I think, these kinds of talks. Um, and and also, I mean, maybe not a super important point, but it's a subsidiary of SockGen that is right. going to be issuing these OS. OFG, I think? OFG tokens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you say, you said it's not the first real world assets that are allowed in Maker? I mean, what else is... Uh, that we know of, right? Centrifuge, I think, is one I'm aware of, but yeah. there's a couple others. So I was reading that 41.7 million die is already deployed and backed by these real-world asset vaults. There's five of them. Um, one of them is operated by a real estate financing firm, 6S Capital. Oh, wow. Do you? Oh, wow. No, and I don't then know. there's yeah. centrif- one backed by Centrifuge, Fortunify, um, and I think a couple other. So this is like the merger of TradFi and DeFi. Yeah, well, it's interesting that a lot of this kind of escaped my radar until last week and this week with the Huntington um, and and SockGen this week. Um, And I think there's a discussion to be had on whether this is a good thing for MakerDAO or not. I think that these kinds of loans add stability to the protocol. Because they add diversity of the reserve composition, essentially. Right, and also these are longer term loans too. They're not like, you know, you deposit in ETH and then you can take it out whenever. These are multi-year loan deposits, um, that loans that mature over like a multi-year time frame. Um, And so this kind of seems like the next step after USDC to make MakerDAO a more resilient DeFi protocol. But there's other people who say, if you add in TradFi risk, that's gonna de- that's gonna right. increase the risk of your protocol. You, you but bring the traditional market risk into into DeFi. But is the traditional market risk really what MakerDAO is trying to escape from? When up until now, it seems like they're trying to integrate TradFi more to create stability. No, I stability. agree. I don't think it is. Yeah, so I think you're like, right. It's but it is an interesting idea too. About whether it you know, the I guess if we could consider this not specifically this proposal, it's been going on like you said for a little while. Um, but the, and and we know they want to increase it. Um, the use of real-world assets as collateral in DeFi. Um, this is sort of the vision of DeFi. A lot of people thought, right, was bring you know make DeFi just Fi one day. I don't. It, but the transition period is going to be quite interesting if this is the beginning or you know front end of what ends up being a transition. I don't know if it is, um, but it, it, does it cause contagion and like to spread? I mean, is it? Do we want DeFi intertwined with? all markets? I mean, I I don't know. I feel like it's the natural progression for DeFi as it grows bigger. Um, But I do think that one of the interesting parts about both proposals and of the five vaults is that when a real centralized entity is interacting with a decentralized protocol, you need to have an intermediary that basically makes sure that when the, if the centralized intermediary if the centralized bank like defaults or doesn't like pay up their loan, that there is some kind of a legal route where um, MakerDAO can still right. get back what they need. And so yeah. for that, they need to set up. So for the Huntington Bank one, they've um, assigned a, a, they've created this Delaware statutory trust, a legal entity that can basically purchase the loans from the Huntington Valley Bank, which is unique to that proposal. But when it comes to the Sokshen one, they're basically going through um, an existing company, a French company called the DIIS Group. Um, and they're, they kind of work with a bunch of different companies on, on debt 
like financing and debt loans. Um, and their base and MakerDAO is is contracting them to be that intermediary so between the bank and the protocol. And so it, at every time, every time you need to onboard a real world asset or create one of these vaults, you need to create a a legal entity or like contract out that role um, and it'll be and the more that this happens it'll be interesting to see that area of 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 I guess like legal innovation yeah and DAOs in the real world operating yeah um, very interesting okay uh, one more and then we're going to transition uh, to Rachel on Stratum v2 but Peter Willa um, a longtime Bitcoin core maintainer right so uh, one of the few people who can actually affect a, mer a code merge on the Bitcoin github repository um, he stepped down as a core maintainer and um, Gloria Zhao was added as a core maintainer. And we believe, although um, I think technically there was uh, at least one anonymous uh, developer with merge capabilities. So, but in general, we believe Gloria of the first female um, to be a Bitcoin core code maintainer. So congratulations to her. And just Peter Willa, um, just people should know, um, he wrote BIP32, which is HD wallets, um, which is how um, uh, higher heuristic determination wallets. Out of, anyway, it allows for, among other things, right, the creation of seed phrases. Um, and it also is like essentially how XPubs are created, right, where you can have many derivative, I think nearly unlimited um, derivative public and private key pairs underneath, uh, in one, in one wallet. So, um, but that's not all. He also wrote BIPs 141 and 144, which are segregated witness, um, the soft fork that Bitcoin enacted in August, 2017. And he also wrote 340, 341 and 342, which are taproot and schnorr, which activated, um, in, uh, November, I believe of 2021. So a few months, I guess about nine months ago. Um, so a truly prolific and epic Bitcoin core contributor, Peter Willa, he, he will still work on Bitcoin core, but he just won't be a maintainer of the repository. What does that mean that he's not going to be a maintainer of the repository? Like, what is the actual role that he stepped down from, given that he's still going to be doing all of these? Like, he's still going to be using his brain to to. Like, yeah, and he can progress. certainly contribute to Bitcoin core. But yeah, I don't know, Rachel, like you're you're a we're going to transition on Stratum, but you're a core maintainer for the Stratum V2 repo. Like, what does a core maintainer do? So. For Bitcoin Core, I imagine the maintainer just is the person who merges the pull requests after enough acts have been received. Right, and so acts are you know positive uh, votes for something being added, right? The code right. has been reviewed by enough people and it's right. been agreed upon that it should be merged. So it's sort of like organizing and, and publishing changes when they, you know. They have the final say really of what is merged in. Well, that that's the interesting thing because like, you know, let's say I just make my own repository right now and I'm the maintainer of, for any software that I'm creating, like I can do anything, right? Yeah. Um, so theoretically, a Bitcoin core maintainer could be an act, could, could act in an activist manner, say merge things that didn't have consensus among the contributors. Um, to be clear, they don't do that, but they could. It is a powerful and important role, um, but Bitcoin is pretty famous for being um, following the sort of open source software development ethos of, you know, open code review, um, collaborative, um, better than, you know, most projects, right? I mean, very, very. So, so I think pragmatically speaking, the core maintainers don't really do anything in particular that's activist. Um, they sort of just guide and maintain, <laughs> right? Um, and Peter Willa, I mean, he, he works at Chain Code Labs, which is, um, a Bitcoin um, development nonprofit, actually. Um, so he's still working on Bitcoin and training Bitcoin developers, but uh, I guess doesn't. And I think he said he hadn't actually done a merge, uh, merged anything himself in many months. So it was he downplayed that this was a big deal, and I, I don't think it is a huge deal, but it is it is awesome to give someone else a turn at at, at this. And and um, and anyway, just people should know about Peter Will, a very epic developer. I thought it was kind of interesting, the timing of these two announcements. Peter Willa saying that he was going to step down from being a core maintainer. And then very shortly thereafter, Gloria Zhao being announced as like a new core maintainer. It sounds like there's this unspoken rule that there should be six and that when one steps down from the six, somebody else has to step yeah, in. I, I don't know. It's a good question. Um, 
we, we you know we'll we'll have to have some Bitcoin core uh, developers join the podcast in the near future, and and we can definitely make that happen because um, it's a great question. Um, and so, uh, but let's transition. Rachel is here. Um, Rachel is a vice president of mining research at Galaxy Digital, and you've been working on Stratum V2, which is the the new upgrade. Uh, desperately wanted, I think, by a lot of people, but we'll, I'll ask you and you tell us why that is, um, for the Bitcoin mining protocol, the actual way that miners communicate with pools, um, assemble block templates, actually sort of do the, the, the work of, of creating blocks. And, um, so before we dive deep into it, can you explain just what, what I'm even talking about here? Like, what is a mining protocol? Like, at all and then maybe what is stratum today that what we currently have yeah so a mining protocol is just the way that uh machines communicate with the pool to contribute um hash rate to the network so to confirm blocks on the network right and then the current so it's messaging yeah it's just a set of rules that the bitcoin miners and the pool uh both speak yeah and that's how they communicate to contribute uh, got it and so stratum is the name of the one everyone uses and not just in Bitcoin, right? I mean, they use it in other proof of work networks as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so w right now what's being used is Stratum V1 and that was developed in 2012. Um, 10 years ago. Yeah. Long time ago. Oh my God. Um, and it was developed by a user on a Bitcoin talk forum called slush. Um, and it was really good at the time, but there's a lot of inefficiencies now uh, that are holding back miners and Stratum V2 fixes that. So, okay. Um, and it, I remember, I think you were telling me once that it was like, it's kind of hacked together out of necessity back then. It works, but it's not, it wasn't sort of like, let's have a giant, let's have a nicely maintained project. Let's have a roadmap, right? It was sort of like, we need this. Yeah, well, there was a, a lot less people mining back right. then. Um, and before Stratum V1, there was a Git block template and uh, get work and these were using sort of a uh, called a long polling method uh, which is typically used for web browsers um, which does not mimic the pattern that miners uh, participate in miners uh, have very specific messages with very specific responses yep. um, so stratum v1 was a huge improvement over the previous protocols it introduced json rpc messaging and it was really helpful at the time too because it was human readable so people could see the messages and understand what was being passed and it was a lot more efficient in the previous protocols yeah. so what are some of the challenges though of stratum v1 like areas and we'll lead that into a way to talk about what you guys are working on for stratum v2 well the json rpc messages are not good anymore okay um they're very inefficient because they're human readable so they're slow they're slow yeah they take up a lot of bandwidth extra space um, they're not machine readable. So the machine has to uh, serialize and deserialize these messages into a binary format. Um, and Stratum V2 just skips that whole step uh, because it is a binary protocol by default. So there's no more JSON RPC messages. Um, there were a few messages that were uh, redundant in the Stratum V1 protocol. So Stratum V2 will consolidate and make simpler the message types? Yeah, so Stratum V2 has basically reduced the messages to the absolute minimum. Um, and this reduces uh, bandwidth consumption and latency. Latency, okay, so it, it's faster yeah. and lighter weight. Yes. And, and that speed, is that good for miners in general? I mean, does that make them more profitable? Yeah, because they can start mining blocks faster um, and contribute their submissions faster. Interesting. And and so what else are you guys doing in Stratum V2? I, one, one I remember was um, because they were human readable, they're also, um, and not just because they're human readable, but that's even an, an additional thing. They're not encrypted, the messaging, right? Like Right. So Stratum V1 actually has no channel encryption between the miner and the pool. This leaves it open to uh, a wide variety of attacks. Like a man in the middle attack or- Exactly, yeah. yeah. And a man in the middle attack is essentially, when we're talking about mining, is when there's an attacker who sits on the wire and intercepts messages between the miner and the pool, and will uh, the attacker will insert their credentials, uh, replacing the honest miner's credentials. So basically stealing their hash rate. Yeah, and if you are running a giant mine, it's very hard to detect because there's so many connections so if, unless you're explicitly looking for it, you're probably not going to find it. 
So, um, and what, what else does Stratum V2 do? What does it do on like block template creation? Um, well, I guess we should take a step back because okay. like Stratum V2 is and Stratum V1, they're not a one-to-one -one protocol. Stratum V2 is a complete rewrite of Stratum V1. Stratum V1 simply right, defines... So it's not just an upgrade. It's just we're doing it again. Yeah. yeah. It, it keeps some of the same uh, messaging ideas, but Stratum V1 basically just defined like 10 messages uh, that all of the miners in the pools will implement and it left a lot of other things up um, to the implementer's discretion. Um, Stratum v2 is a very fixed protocol so there's not room for interpretation there. Um, also Stratum v2 encompasses a wider variety of the ecosystem. It, uh, there's a portion of Stratum v2 that is for the firmware there's a portion of Stratum v2 that's for the pool. I and, see. And there's a portion of Stratum v2 that's for the proxy. Stratum v1 doesn't have any specifications for a proxy. So all the Stratum v1 proxies are just hacked together. Um, and these are, the, these are the servers that the mine uses to actually communicate with the pool, right? Or it sits in between the pool and the machines. Yeah, so a proxy is actually optional. You can just mine directly to the pool, but uh, it's going to lead to inefficiencies and an increase in bandwidth consumption, which a lot of miners, especially in rural areas, are very bandwidth constrained. Right. Um, so everyone uses a proxy, and these mines have had to write their own proxies. Um, and it's they're probably not the most efficient implementations either. It's hard so, to know, right, if they're all doing it on their own. I mean, it's sort of maybe some some's great, another one's maybe not. Maybe some aren't, yeah. So you guys are going to provide the software for the proxy server. Exactly. Standardized, so, easy to implement. Yeah. So the, the Stratum repo itself uh, is a set of libraries. And depending on what role uh, you want to implement, role being a mining device, a mining proxy, or a pool server, you will pick and choose the libraries from this repository. Um, in the repository, there will also be included binaries for the mining device, for the proxy, for the pool. So you can just install it. So Exactly. Yeah. And they're not ready for production yet. but. Yeah eventually they will be. Yep. And how customizable are these three components depending on the pool and the miner? I would imagine that pools are trying to compete for um, mining hash bar, like as much as mining hash bar is possible to be directed towards them. Um, and, and I would imagine that these pools would also try and look for more efficient ways to like to make that communication between miners and their pool as more efficient perhaps than other pools. Um, so it's interesting, I mean, I guess even as a separate question that this is something that independent researchers and analysts are building. Cause I would think that there's like an incentive for pools to do this, but maybe not. Um, so I guess that's a separate question, but also like how customizable are these for like a specific um, application, a specific mining entity? Um, or is it just like everyone uses the same thing and you can't change um, very much about it? Everything, everyone uses the same thing, but it has custom customization built in. Um, so there is a concept of channels in Strata V2. There's three different channels. There's a standard channel, which is what we think of today, where we have a, you know, a downstream device, either the, the mining device or the proxy, and the upstream device, the pool. So the standard channel is what we're used to. Um, there is group channels, which uh, group a, a large number of standard channels together, and this reduces uh, bandwidth. And then there's also an extended channel, which offers uh, a lot of customization. Uh, specifically, it allows miners running Stratum V1 firmware to uh, mine to Stratum V2 pools. Oh, cool. It's like an intermediary step here if you don't want to. So the pools could upgrade, but the miners haven't yet. You could still get some of the benefits overall. Yeah, because asking the miners to upgrade is a big, big ask. In my opinion, um, they do. Yeah, I don't know why, though. This is something I've always asked you. Like, why can't miners like they run a data center business? They can't upgrade their software. Is, why is it hard? It would be a lot easier if the manufacturers of ASICs would include Stratum V2 by default. Right. Because right now it's Stratum V1. So it's a lot of machines, first of all. If I have like 10,000 machines exactly. and I have to upgrade them all, that's a pain. Yeah. Yeah. And Stratum V1 is already defaulted into these 
into these machines. On the firmware? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So they do I nothing. See. They do nothing. They, they receive the miner, they plug it into the so wall. So historically, they've had to do nothing, so they haven't had they as like... They don't even know how to upgrade. Yeah, yeah they don't know Some how to upgrade. Some might not, yeah. and, and they yeah. shouldn't have to know, right? right? That's not their job to know the intricacies of the firmware. Right, they're, they're not software developers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they shouldn't be punished for that. Right. So if manufacturers would include Stratum V2 by default, it would be a lot easier to So you think they going. will eventually? Is that, I mean, that's the goal, right? I think they will eventually have to, to stay competitive. Yeah, because someone will, and then everyone will say, well, we want we want our machines to... Can they push down firmware upgrades, like mining ma machine manufacturers, like in general, do they? Yeah. Yeah, so they could, they could actually redeploy it, so we don't have to wait for like a new machine to be released. Correct. That's great. Um, okay, what else though? What else does this, we know it, so it improves latency, it is standardized, it's easy to install, um, and it's faster, it's simpler. Um, that's all great. That makes it mining more profitable, right? And, and simpler um, and more private. Um, what else is there in Stratum V2? Because you know what I'm leaning, leaning towards here. <laughs> yeah, the transaction selection by yes. the miners. Yeah. Yes. So right now with Stratum V1, the pools are the party that chooses the transactions that are confirmed in the blocks and confirmed on the network. Right. So uh, we have about 10 pool operators choosing all of the transactions that are uh, committed to the blockchain. Um, this is not good for obvious reasons, right? Because if even just one pool operator decided to start censoring transactions, we're gonna have a problem. And these pools are businesses, right? Like they can be addressed by law enforcement or a exactly. government. They're susceptible to regulation in yeah. that way. Yeah, so Stratum V2 gives the miner the option to select their own transactions and build their own block template. Um, again, they don't have to, so it speaks to the flexibility of Stratum V2. It would require the miner to run their own Bitcoin node uh, with the uh, template provider logic. Yeah, I think that I like the, so you know I love this. I've, I've, you and I have talked about this a lot, Rachel, um, and I think you've convinced me that the main reason miners should embrace an upgrade to Stratum V2 is primarily due to ease, um, simplicity, and and speed and privacy and that these things also will make them more money right that's, so it's like come for the, the come for the profit but stay for the privacy i think is um you know i think from the miners perspective they care a lot more about profit rightly so um the network's perspective the users right i mean i think we just want blocks confirmed and we don't want our transactions to be censored even better, we don't want them to be censorable. But also to be clear, that caveat um, for miners to opt in to the to the whole, you know, we're going to create our own blocks, choose our own transactions. They do need to run their do own more. Bitcoin node yeah. and add in that software. But, but the assumption they, is that. But the fact that they could, I think, adds a, an important check on the pools. They don't have to. If the pools aren't censoring, they don't have to do anything but if they did censor um then miners could right now miners really can't they could self-mine they could if they're self-mining um but you know in practical terms almost everyone uses a pool right so uh, to me it's more the the fact that they could <laughs> if they chose to but um, they don't have to go through a pool do they no that's self-mining you don't have to but your your rewards will be extremely variable <laughs> correct yeah and I think like the future I would hope for is that all the miners run Stratum V2 and they all build their own block templates. But the future that I think will happen is that most miners will end up running Stratum V2 and the pools will still be choosing the transactions. And I think that, you know, from a altruistic perspective of like wanting a better network, um, that feature Stratum V2 is the best feature, but from a re more realistic or practical perspective, it actually should be looked at as more of, as a fail safe. Yep. If the pools start censoring transactions, we as a network have, uh, have the ability to combat that um, immediately. Yep, I love that. That's exactly how I'm thinking about it. I think it's, um, I agree, I'd love them all to do it, but I really just care that they can do it exactly. <laughs> if needed. Um, Okay, so and then and then on sort of like development. I mean, Rachel, just for our audience, Rachel develops Stratum V two. She works at Galaxy, but obviously we're a Bitcoin miner, so that's one reason why we care. But 
this is for the whole community for all of Bitcoin. Um, where, how are you guys doing on progress? And, and then let's talk about, you know, likelihood for implementation, you know? Yeah, it's going well. Um, the main developer, his name's Filippo. He goes by FI3. He's done a majority of the work. He's been working on it for a couple years now. Um, I joined in about a year ago, and then we have another developer uh, sponsored by BitMEX named Chris, and he's been working on the template provider logic for Bitcoin Core. Um, so in order for miners to be able to select transactions, we need the template provider to be merged in to Bitcoin Core. Got it. Um, the repository is written in Rust, uh, so it's very efficient. You love Rust. I love Rust. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, but you guys are making progress. Um, I don't know, like how close are we? Couple years for like, couple years for like really really production ready binaries. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Are um, you concerned at all about the part the part of the Stratum V2 protocol that you need to integrate with the Bitcoin Core protocol? Like that step. Do you think that step alone will take a couple years? It's just the software, on, though, right? It's not it's not a consensus change or anything. It's just the Bitcoin Core node yeah, software. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be there's going to be aspects of the code that you can use before a couple of years. I'm just thinking of like when it's the all full, yeah, yeah. Said and done. And there there are implementations of Stratum v2 on the firmware side right now. Brains has their Brains OS and Brains OS Plus that uh, implement Stratum v2, but only a portion. Right. One, it's just the firmware, and then two, they only have standard channels implemented. So right now you cannot use extended channels or group channels. So. Okay, so that's it's nice to know though we can get pieces of this along the way. Yeah. Um, and if you're saying the the yeah the the template um, the block template portion is what enables transaction selection and and that isn't necessary, right? So that can can come later. Yeah, we actually have a demo though. Of, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, Chris has made a fork of Bitcoin and he has a little demo of the template provider working. Oh, so Chris has made a lot of progress then. He uh, has. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, and and are there any barriers to adoption? Like, are there any groups that like, I mean, you, you talked about the mining manufacturers really wanting to get them to start putting this in the firmware. Of course, they can push it down, like we said, so they can still do that. Um, but like, is there anyone on the other side of this that doesn't want Stratum V2 or is it just, you know, inertia and, and stuff? I think the biggest barrier is just getting it all coded and getting it reviewed and uh getting it completed. Yeah. I think it, it really benefits all parties, right? It benefits the miners, it benefits the pools. Um, benefits the network like we talked about. Benefits the network. Uh, it benefits the pools because it, it offloads um, some of their computational load if the miners are selecting their own block templates. It also uh, helps reduce empty blocks on the network. Even though empty blocks um, aren't as prevalent as they used to be and they're starting to decrease as transaction fees, uh, uh, begin to increase in, in importance, importance as the block reward decreases. Um, but with Stratum v1, the prev hash of the previous block is is coupled with the Merkle root and the, the block template. And so Stratum v2 actually separates that. So the pools um, can send out a, a block template. People can be mining on that block. While that's happening, pools can look into their mempool and select transactions that they will expect to be for the next block, send that out to miners before receiving the, the prev hash. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, also making them a lot more efficient. Exactly. Very cool. And why aren't, why don't you think pools are, are like, really like more involved in the Stratum V2 initiative, like funding this initiative, trying to figure out more efficient ways to make their pool, make their pool like more uh, accommodating, I guess, yeah. like to miners. Um, it kind of sounds like most of the other contributors to Stratum V2 are, are research hubs, like crypto research firms. So actually every pool I've spoken to is very interested in Stratum V2. I think it's just really early days um, it's very new, not a lot of people know about it quite yet, but that's starting to change. But every single pool seems to be very interested and wants to, wants to know how they can uh, implement it. Um, mm -hmm. But what we really need right now in the short term is better efficiency data. We need to be able to point to numbers and be like, this is like how much better Stratum V2 is. Yeah. Um, right now, uh, Galaxy, um, Josh, an, a mining intern, and I are working on uh, just simply counting the byte difference between Stratum V1 and Stratum V2. 
um, just so we can have something we can point to to people and be like, look, like this is how many bytes you're going to save in an hour of mining with Strata V2 over Strata V1. Yeah. Just little things like that will really progress the protocol. Do you need more developers in general or is yeah. it, you guys, yeah, <laughs> calling developers? Uh, That's always the problem with open mining. source software. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and public goods development. Well, this is awesome. Um, I I cannot wait for this. I've been Stratum V2 pilling uh, anyone that I can. Um, I like it for a lot of reasons. It, it is surprising to me that an industry that big, Bitcoin mining, like doesn't have like hordes of people working on this type of stuff. I think a lot of people kind of just put mining on the back burn, burner for a long time. They, um, I think some people look at it as kind of dirty because it is involved with making money. You know, a lot of the altruistic devs may not want to be involved in that as much. That's so it just kind of got pushed. I could be wrong. Right. But that is my interpretation. It's the indus in, in, uh, heavy industry behind Bitcoin. It's not the, you know, the, um, it's not the monetary policy. It's not the, uh, you know, open source money part of it. Yeah, I mean, Ethereans are going to fork off miners completely. So I think right. that it, that sentiment is yeah, prevalent in the crypto industry. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's awesome work. I'm very happy that you're uh, working on it and that you came to talk with us about it. And I should tell our audience, Rachel wrote an excellent in-depth report about Stratum V2, which you can read at www.stratum.report. Um, S T R A T U M dot report stratum. Um, so check that out. If you want to learn more about stratum V2 and the work that Rachel's doing and, um, and the team is doing, um, Rachel and, and two others, right? It's like a, me and a couple guys were like working on this thing. Um, that's going to change the entire Bitcoin yeah. industry within a couple of years. It's like, absolutely that's crazy. massive. I mean, it absolutely d will change all of Bitcoin mining, um, for the better too. And it's also just great that like you got, we got a team of people that are actually like trying to build an optimized updated version of this thing and and the idea that the industry has been operating on again not just bitcoin but basically all proof of work networks have been using a protocol designed 10 years ago before asics even entered the market um just it's just wild it's wild to think about uh, an industry that generates literally tens of billions of dollars a year scary yeah it is kind of scary very um, scary well great work thank you for joining us um I don't think, do we have any quick takes? We want to talk about Starknet. Starknet's doing their token. I think everyone knew this, but. I don't think that's news. It's not news. All right, cut, cut, cut it out. <laughs> cut it out, Finn. Get it out of the pod. I don't um, think that's news. All right, thanks. Thanks. I think it was a great podcast. Um, it was a good one. It was a long one, um, but I think I'm here for it. And I really appreciate uh, each of you three, Bimnet and Rachel and Christine, uh, joining us. And everyone out there in the audience, um, thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, check us out on Twitter at GLXY Research and read our reports at galaxydigital.io research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.